Because of Doctor Who. We met through Doctor Who. And um, specifically we met because I wrote a book about, a memoir about working on Doctor Who. Very good memoir called Script Doctor. And I was moaning on social media because it was out of print and you got in touch saying uh, I can reprint it. And the reason I'm mentioning all this <laughs> is because, well, number one, it's fascinating. But number two, I think it might have been on our first meeting. But if it wasn't, it was very early in our friendship that you said to me the following words. Have you seen the film, The Man Who Haunted It Himself, starring Roger Moore? So this has been a long time coming. I know why that would have been. Because when one enters your abode, oh. one is immediately faced with a lot of soundtracks. Ah. And it's a soundtrack that I tried for a long time to get hold of. It was very hard to get hold of for a long time. Oh, that's interesting. And I think probably I asked you on the off chance he had a copy, but not long after that I got hold of one. I've got half a billion the DVD's got a soundtrack with it. It does. It does, yeah, which I I only noticed when I lent it to you. I didn't even know it was in there. It's He's a very good composer, Michael J. Lewis. Um, he did a musical called Serrano, but I'm trying to think of the sort of films that people might have heard of that he did scores for, but he did Sphinx. That's not a famous movie, but he, he just happens to have done that. Anyway, he's an excellent British film composer, and it's quite a jazzy score. Is that what appealed to you about it? Yeah, um, it stylistically it reminds me a lot of the prisoner thing ah and it um, is of that period too but also that the version of it because it's it's the same piece of music just in different styles all the way oh, through interesting but it's the um it's that <laughs> in the film it's got a horrendous little greek island on the record sleeve um it's that relaxing That's... version the, the, <laughs> the light entertainment version that comes during the film. Yeah. i really like that it's but that's not the chief thing about this film for you is it no not remotely but um it was uh yeah, it was uh, me just trying to get a soundtrack out of something. No, but I'm sure that you mentioned it. In fact, I don't think that was the context you first mentioned it. I think the context was Roger Moore is really good in this movie. Yes, because Roger Moore, I adore Roger Moore. He's a really nice guy. Um, I've dealt with him on two occasions. Oh, interesting. And we did the Q&A. Uh, we went along to the BFI once and he was very, very funny. And it was one of those people where even though it's an hour and a half Q&A, you wish it could go on all night. <laughs> Which is not always the case. Yeah. He was tormenting, they had a signer um, doing sign language at the side for all yeah. his answers, and he was tormenting her with, he was slipping words in just to see what she would do. And <laughs> I, I like a brain that can work on that level of still delivering a coherent answer, but also throwing in a word like cauliflower, just to see <laughs> how she reacts. Um, and I love the James Bond books, and the films, I like them, but I'm not as big a fan of them because you know, the, the more it goes on, the less Bond it is. And I, I really don't like Roger Moore as Bond. I oh. don't think he's... I, I never thought he had the acting chops well, I'm glad to do you, it. I'm glad you said that because I, I think the more Bond is not a great Bond. Yeah. And uh, a lot of that's not down to him. I think a lot of it's down to the quality of the scripts. It's that they, They've run out of books. And they're kind of flying... Well, you say that, but he definitely created a certain kind of James Bond. Yes, which is basically Roger Moore, what he does in most things. So when you find a film where he's suitably different, it's really exciting. And 
It is interesting. That's what happened with this, is that this was the first time I'd seen him act, and I think he's really, really good at this. And I was so pleased when we went to that Q&A that when asked about this by me, <laughs> which is quite cool, yeah. he said that he thought it was his best performance. And there was a murmur of agreement among the hall. So, yeah, Roger Moore's great in this. Well, I people who are listening to this largely won't remember what I'm talking about, but there used to be a show called Spinning Image, yes. which had, was a satirical show which had puppets who looked who were caricatures of people. And the Roger Moore puppet, its running gag was the only thing it could do to, to act or have any expressivity was to slightly move one eyebrow. And what's interesting is that all the way through the, the Bond films he was doing, there's one film which shows you that actually there's more to this guy than meets the eye because you've got Cannonball Run where he's playing Roger Moore. And there's something about that performance that makes you think, well, hang on, this guy isn't Roger Moore. That The Roger Moore is a performance. So when he's playing Bond, he's playing Roger Moore. He's not playing Bond. There are occasional moments. Um, there's uh, is it The Spy Who Loved Me where he kicks the car down the um, cliff takes the pin off the guy and kicks him. You were looking oh, it's the at tie. <laughs> yeah, there's also the tie. He slices the tie and the guy dies. There's a, there are dark moments, but not enough. There are too many silly moments, and he seems to always lean toward the lighter moments rather than the darker moments in every film he's in. So he always lightens the performance, even in something as bad as The Quest. Uh, he did a John Claude Van Damme film. Um, <laughs> yeah, he's, he's not trying. The, I was talking to a friend the other day, and they brought this movie up out of nowhere, and... Uh, he said much the same thing, and I, I keep thinking of the slogan for the uh, Christopher Reeve Superman movie, You'll Believe a Man Can Fly. And I, I, That's what I kept thinking when I was getting ready to watch this film, is You'll Believe a Man Can Act, because that yeah. was what I was told, that this is the movie which Roger Moore proves that he can act. And it is an interesting, understated performance, because he certainly doesn't eat the scenery, and he's quite tormented in this. The man who haunted himself, I was thinking about how we could define this movie i think you'd have to say it's a horror film yeah it's a psychological thriller yes but if one believes what one sees in the screen at the end it's actually a supernatural thriller i know it's very strange isn't it i, I don't even think it's open to interpretation i think they're basically their cards are on the table it's not like you can say oh it's symbolic of this it's not yeah uh, there's only one way of wrapping up the plot and the things that happen in the film is that there have to have been two of them at some point so basically for the listeners this is a doppel- good luck <laughs> no, this is a doppelganger movie yes and i'm sure that there's more of them i think isn't there uh isn't toby dammit uh that's one of there's there's a portmanteau film called something like spirits of the dead uh and there's i think is it terence stamp is in a movie called toby dammit which is based on a post short story we're going to have to get the retro fix in here if, I, if I'm wrong about any of this. But there are movies about people who meet their own doubles, and this is one of them. Well, it is, but the, the meeting itself barely takes up oh, two minutes of the film. Well, so I for say the meeting. Most part, it's an implied doppelganger th- all the way this through. This is a movie about a man who may have a double. Let's yes. put it like that. So it's a man about um, a man who may have a doppelganger. They do a reasonable job of convincing you that this might just be a guy who's breaking up. Well, let's back up a little bit. Yeah. The movie was shot in 68 and released in 1970. And it's peak 60s. One of the things I instantly loved... Okay, so I'm watching these movies because you just... You hand me movies and I watch them. And I... I but what I instantly it's no loved... no defence in court. <laughs> it's, it's very beautifully shot. Like, it's very glossy and polished and well shot. But the thing is, it's this 
go, he, it begins with him in his office in London, then driving out of London, and you get all this period photography hmm. of what London looked like at the time, and the buildings, and the roads, and the buses, and the cars. I mean, just for that. Just clear roads is what's amazing. I get this. This is my big thing with carry-on films, is that I'm not big on the histor- historicals, but I love the contemporary ones because I love seeing empty streets. You've got you know, roads where there's no cars parked up the sides. You've got massive wide roads that you can drive down. Somebody was saying this the other day about being able to drive into London and park yeah, in the 60s. Yeah, uncrowded London. <laughs> London on a Sunday where London is asleep. You know, when people used to go and film, you know, like Doctor Who a few times, did some early Sunday morning, they could go in and there'd be no one around. You can never go to London now and not have anyone around. But in fairness, uh, the roads all look pretty busy to me in this. When he's driving across, the, is it the West Way? Anyway, those, those elevated... Uh, I would rather Those. drive through that London than current London. I've got to tell. <laughs> well, it's this beautiful nostalgia trip, and it's mm. beautifully shot in gorgeous colour. Uh, and the only flaw is when we cut inside the car, it's pretty clearly back projection. Apparently, it's not always back projection, but it's largely back projection yeah. of Roger Moore. And that becomes important quite quickly because this guy, his name is... I've forgotten his name. Pelham. Pelham, right. And his nickname is Pell. And he's a businessman who works for an electronics firm. No, it's an underwater diving apparatus firm. Yeah, it's a maritime firm of some kind. Uh, essentially, I, I, I mean, it's very heavy-handed, this, but I believe the intention... They had to change the name of the company. Originally, the company was something like International Diving, so it was ID, and they're oh, being taken over by um, EGO. Which, it and ego. That's I didn't know. That's hilarious. Yeah. So ego is taking over. Why did they change that? It's wonderful. Well, they couldn't use the company name. It was already a, a used company name, so they had to change it. So I think it's only referred to on a plaque in the film. It's much like Swan Song in Phantom of the Paradise, where they they have the record label and they've used it throughout the film and they yeah. never thought to check to see if it existed. Uh, and then suddenly they've got to change huge chunks of the film and try and cover it, but you can't cover all of it because it's yeah. it's all over the place. But Idanigo, so that's that's really interesting. Yeah. So anyway, he's working for this firm uh, which... Uh, they've got a top secret thing. Yeah, but the main thing is it's maritime technology and he's got this wonderful riverside office in Bankside mm. and it's great because... None of those scenes are shot on a sound stage. They're, they're shot for real, and he's got the fantastic views of the Thames in those days. It was wonderful. Anyway, he leaves his office, he drives home, and out of nowhere, this respectable businessman kind of goes nuts and starts putting his <laughs> foot down, and he drives crazily fast. And there's a shot where his car, which is a rover, is replaced with, I think, a Lamborghini. There's, it's that's, like a Jag, I think. It, well, the thing... This it's is a sporty the, car. This is the advantage I have over you, is that I listen to some of the commentary. Because you lent me this excellent network set, which is a DVD Blu-ray set with a good commentary. And I, it was, I, I believe it was a Lamborghini. Oh, my, that's got Roger Moore on it, hasn't that? Commentary? Yeah, and he, Brian Ford. He's really funny on that. I've forgotten all about that. Yeah. And so he's driving this Rover really hard, really fast, high speed, and you get the sudden flash of him in this silver sports car, the same guy in silver sports car. And that's the first intimation that something really weird's going to happen. Well, are we going to have a trumpet fanfare yeah, at that point? We'll have a, a... Jade has entered the building. <laughs> Yay! Oh, I hope that the cat, the, uh, the mic picked her up at that point. <laughs> Tippy-tappy pause. Um, so what happens is he crashes his car. He, he Out of nowhere... In fact, he gets this sort of satanic expression on his face, doesn't he? Yeah. He puts his foot down and he speeds up and eventually crashes the car. And in the course of the car racing towards its crash, you do get this sort of flash forward to this weird silver sports car 
which is going to be significant later on. Then he's rushed into hospital. I've got this bee in my bonnet about unrealistic lighting because I, I worked on Doctor Who. This is one of the few scenes, the scene in the hospital, the hospital corridor is the lighting's all wrong. It looks like a set. The hospital itself, the operating room, something's not right because uh, a friend of mine used to have this plan that he wanted to create uh, an extras agency called Concerned Faces. And it's just a room of concerned faces. No one's actually doing anything. And they're meant to be operating on him, but they seem to be operating on his right hand, whereas his head seems to be what's damaged. Well, the anaesthetist does seem to be doing some stuff. Not really. No. Have, have, a, have a second watch of it. No one's doing anything in that operating room, and then suddenly his levels start dipping. And So there's a lot to disagree yeah. with about It's about very the... poorly staged operating yeah. theatre. But the cool thing about this is, is they've got one of those uh, life monitor machines one which shows his heartbeat on it and at a certain point he suddenly has two heartbeats yeah. and that's really cool because this that's sort of the suggestion is that he's sort of split into two at that point so then he's if i remember rightly do we then cut to him back at work something like that yeah there's no recuperation it's just it's him on off leaving the house for his first day at work in back a replacement car same yeah, car yeah. he bought the same car again and she moans about that yeah because he crashed the first one and then Gradually, all these little things begin to accumulate. The first thing I think is that he's at work and has this board meeting. This other, this old fart in the boardroom meeting says, "Oh, you cut me dead the other day when you walked past." And uh, he doesn't say to the old fart, but he says to somebody else, "Well, I was in Spain last week, so that wasn't me." That board is fantastic, by the way. The actors sitting around that table. This is what made me first get hold of this film. Was that I wanted? Uh, uh, it's got Eddie Leslie in it, and. He was Norman Wisdom's straight man for a ah. long time, and it's his final film. So I got it specifically for that, and he's barely got four lines in it. He mm. was got Gerald Sim in there as well. Well, let's talk about the people who um, wrote and directed this movie. So this yes. was uh, it's Basil Durden. Yes, and he's got a long time partner that he does his movies with. Who is? I have no idea. Well, you've got the the cover there. Dig oh, it out. It's a long reach. Hang on. Yeah, so it, it's if it's not in the pile, it's in your bag. So Basil Duden was the director, Good point. and uh, I think they co-produced it, and and his partner wrote the script. I think it's Michael something. Is it Basil Duden and? Uh, is it Michael Ralph? No, yeah. no, yeah, it is Ralph and Duden, isn't it? Yeah, they were a team, and again because I listened to a bit of the commentary, I, I know this other fascinating fact that Duden died soon afterwards. He had just been shooting an episode of The Persuaders. He'd been working on The Persuaders, which was a Roger Moore TV series. Uh, and he died driving home. And he died, according to Roger Moore, he, he died in a car crash at the point in the road where they staged the car crash in this movie. It wasn't exactly there. That's changed over the years. No, but it, he did die in a car crash it was in after. The, in the same country. Yeah, basically. Um, <laughs> the Somewhere in England. exaggerated somewhat. Yeah, uh, well, that, that makes it, because it makes for a better story, right? Absolutely. Yeah, so, but Dearden and Ralph, interesting team, and the studio they were working for was run by Brian Forbes, because he's the other voice in the commentary. So these were top British uh, filmmaking professionals at the time. And when I first put the Blu-ray on, there's this wonderful kind of pre-title sequence with, uh, was it Associated British Pictures or something? Yeah, it's a nice collection of logos. And, on and EMI, and it was just wonderful. It was just a real nostalgia trip. And the photography, the colour photography, I thought was really beautiful. It was crystal clear and great use of kind of um, trippy colours uh, in it. 
Network did a great job of the disc. I, I'm not sure if it's even their transfer. I think it might be Anchor Bay's transfer. Anchor Bay oh. were the ones that first did a proper transfer of this. Prior to that, it was such a manky VHS. Really? Yeah. So this is a genuine cult movie. Hmm. And is, do you think that's because it's, it's a spooky movie, a very unusual movie? I, I think the main thing is Roger Moore, as you say, persuaders and the same. He's got this cult following and bond as well, so people collect his films. The same goes for Crossplot. Crossplot wouldn't be remembered if it didn't have Roger Moore and Alexis Canner in it. So I think it's just a question of there are some. It's a Roger there. Moore movie, but yeah. it's, it is a very interesting Roger Moore movie, and it is based on a novel called something like The Mystery of Mr. Pelham, which it's I think the case you're probably of Mr. Pelham. Is that someone Armstrong. <clears throat> yeah, um, we got the case right there. Do you want got my glasses on for this. For I've got my glasses on at all times, so I could read that. Uh, Anthony Armstrong. Yeah, and is it called The Case, Case of Mr. Pelham? Right. And another thing, and again, because I listened to three minutes of the commentary on it, something next, but <laughs> that novel was also the basis for an Alfred Hitchcock Presents. Yeah, I think it's pretty much almost uh, the same story, yeah. most, but done in about 40 minutes. So this was the, the second time that, that that book has been adapted. So I, that made me want to investigate the book. And it, so it's basically the story about this businessman who's got a double. And, and at first you think, is it in his head? What's going on? But it pretty rapidly becomes clear that there's this double, yeah. this guy. There's no around. logical reason other than there has to be somebody else. But what they're quite clever with is that on the rare occasions that you visibly see the doppelganger, it's always from the back. So you never quite know if maybe it's someone else pretending to be him or not. They do... Um, they do tease you very yeah. effectively for quite a while. But very early on, there's a bit where uh, Pelham has a habit of... S- s- everybody smokes because it's the 60s. After he's lit his cigar, he snaps his match yeah. in a certain way. And, and we see this uh, this watching figure do that too. And that's a, uh, an intimation that this is, you know, it's some kind of really weird double. And just to cut to the chase... At the very end of the film, he actually finally meets the double, and it's it's totally him. Yeah. And the the double actually says to him, at the point where you, you died for a moment, and then I came into being, and there was two of us. That's when there's the two heartbeats. And the final phase of the movie is again a car chase. The car, the, the speeding car, is a definitely a theme in this film. And at the end. I thought rather cravenly, the, well, let's call him the real Pelham, but they're both real. The Pelham that we've been following all the way through flees from his own house and he's pursued by the, his demonic double. And to my astonishment, he gets run off of, is it Richmond Bridge? Yeah, it's just around the corner. It's, yeah, it's, be, it's beautiful. That's uh, the other reason that I suggested, because uh, when I think the first time I drove here, maybe it was I came through that route. Cause I, yeah, because we met at the um, we met in Richmond, Gourmet Burger Kitchen. So we yeah. probably that's probably why we talked about yeah. that about this movie. And there's this great ending where um, poor old Pelham's Rover comes off the road, and the evil Pelham's Lamborghini, I think it's Lamborghini, uh, pulls to a halt, and we see the, the 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 lights of Pelham Number One's car sinking into the river, and uh, Pelham Number Two is standing there, and he sort of. But doesn't he experience a bit of pain in his chest yeah, at that he has point? A little chest palpitation, and then oh, he's better. Yeah, but I thought he was going to die when the other one died, which sort of would have made sense to me. But there's so many loose ends in this. I mean, it's <laughs> there are many issues with this film. Yeah, I mean, the reason I sort of jumped to the ending is because I wanted to discuss the logic of it. So, for instance, let's talk about the the board member who said, "Oh, I saw you last week, and you just cut me dead. You didn't even say hello to me. You walked past me as if you didn't know me." And this is when the real Pelham was in Spain. But 
we then later find out that the Pelham Double has been uh, doing a, a sort of industrial espionage behind the back of the... He's, he's been setting up a, a hostile takeover with another yeah. firm, hasn't he? He's, well, the thing is, that seems to predate the accident. So it's almost like Pelham was already doing this. Ah, that's interesting. I hadn't worked that out, the timeline. So that's one problem with it. But the other problem is when Pelham was doing that, he was going around being Pelham to everybody. So why would he have cut this guy dead, which means to walk past him as if he didn't know him? He would have just said hello to him. It doesn't make any sense. <clears throat> He's also very quick at things he does. Um, there's that sequence where, um, let's say, Pelham, the real Pelham, yes. um, tracks the doppelganger to the club. Yeah. And they say, oh, you just went off to get a drink. And then he goes off to get the drink and they say, oh, you just went off to play snooker. And he goes downstairs straight away and they say, oh, you just finished playing snooker. He's like, for God's sake, what is this guy doing? He's yes, racing around this. I found that a very effective sequence. Oh, it's brilliant. The tension is superb. Yes. Because then yeah. you get that that confrontation with the guy who's got his back to him and you think, okay, here we go. We're finally going to get some yeah. answers now and it's not even the right guy. I I really like that sequence. And, and the increasing restrained hysteria of Roger Moore as he's yeah. going through this is very well handled. He's very well acted. And that sequence culminates in Pelham, the real Pelham, finding his friend from his office. Sitting there, he says, oh, you're back. I was wondering when, when you're going to finish your drink. And he sits down and there's a half-finished pint of beer, which presumably then drinks that was left by his doppelganger. I really like that. It's a very difficult film to get the hang of. And you were saying about the, the cars and the, the racing cars. Which is a motif of the film, I felt. I, I suspect that's probably linked to the fact that one of Pelham's problems, if not before the accident, certainly after it, is that he's now impotent. Oh, that's, that, that is uh, an important thing in the film, that he can't make love to his wife or won't make love to his wife. Well, it seems that he can't get it up. That seems to be the issue. Oh, is that? Okay. Um, and I actually read that as, as an emotional coldness in him rather than a physical incapacity. But, you know, I'm sure I think it's developed into a coldness. It, looks, yeah. it feels like it's been going on a while. Yeah. Um, so I suspect that may be what the, the revving cars are all about. It's a, a bit of machismo. Yeah. Yeah. It's, as ever with any fast car like that for a man of middle age, it's it's there as a replacement. It has to be said that he's got uh, a very dishy wife who is on loan from the uh, Royal Shakespeare Company. <laughs> like most wives? Yeah. <laughs> I have and to return mine next year. Her name was... Oh. Go on. God's sake, man. This is really small print. Uh, oh no! Which one is it? Hildegard Neal plays yes. the wife, doesn't she? Yeah. Yes, that's right. And uh, now the other woman's name because there's a there's a mistress as well. Yes. She was terrific. Olga George Pico. Yeah, who, who one hasn't heard much from since, but I thought she yeah. was excellent. There's a cool sequence in which uh, Pelham goes for a swim. He obviously regularly goes for a swim at the pool with a friend from work, and he literally bumps into this woman who's a photographer doing this photo shoot of men in swimming trunks for some reason. Very peculiar background detail isn't it that, yeah. that whole shoot makes no sense at all yeah but i liked it because wonderful patrick we got it <laughs> yeah i liked it because it made her something it gave her a career and a focus no pun intended but it made her a person who did something rather than just a dolly bird i like that about her and he later goes to her flat which is full of her photo equipment and her photos although they that's rapidly forgotten she just does become a bit of fluff i think in the movie she does, but she's peculiar in that she doesn't particularly care that he keeps going away. She's not that committed to this affair. Yeah, she's she's not head over heels in love with him. Yeah. She has a coolness, which is interesting. And what I one of the main things I loved about this movie is it had that sixties gloss that the Bond films had, or that some of those uh, Lou Grade TV shows had, and also 
movies like Nick Rogue's movies had. I mean, this is not performance uh, shot by Nick Rogue and Donald Camel, but it does have that shared kind of uh, luminous sort of photography and that the intensity of colours that you got from movies that were shot in Britain at that time. And I, I love the fact that it... And I also think of some of the Robert Fuse movies as being like this. It seemed to be part of a movement of British cinema uh, of colour movies with unusual stories and striking visuals. Hmm. And I really felt that it, it was an interesting companion piece to other movies I've seen like that. Which, again, probably explains its cult appeal. Yeah, it certainly did for me. Yeah, it, it sits quite nicely next to things like Fives and that. Yeah, I, I agree. And apart from the uh, back projection in the in some of the car sequences, car interiors, it's really uh, very well shot, on the, very realistically shot in real situations and real locations, which I loved, because it's a time capsule of London at, at that period. Oh, yeah. I mean, there is another flaw with it, which yeah. is... It has the Tell two me. creepiest kids ever on Were film. Were they twins? I can't remember. I mean, they look similar, but it's their dubbed voices, which I'm almost <laughs> certain are an actress called Yasan Churchman. Who I love that you know this. It's, well, this is really look, esoteric. It all knowledge. goes back to Doctor Who. She was the voice of a big cock in a curtain. But <laughs> she. Um, I think you meant a Doctor Who monster of some description. Yeah, I, I, yeah. honestly, I've gone blank with Alpha Centauri. Right. And. She specialised in high-pitched voices, but she did kids a lot. She would yeah. often redub kids, and I've got a feeling that's her redubbing on that film because it sounds like her. And yeah, it's the, just it's so the kids are, can be pretty creepy, but th in fact, it's very heartbreaking because at the end of the film, when our hero comes back and confronts his double, the kids and the wife are with the double against him. Yeah, and it is is quite heartrending. But they're, they're not against him; they're with him. Yeah, they don't know that that's not him. Yeah, it's heartrending because we know that they're with the evil, the evil twin. We're sold that by Roger Moore. That's that's the thing. It's good acting on Roger Moore's part. Well, as as both of them. Yeah, Roger Moore. It's interesting because people, as, as I was saying, that was the thing that was sold to me. That this is the movie in which he acts best. I wouldn't want anybody to go into ex, in this expecting big acting <laughs> or you know histrionic acting. Yeah, there's no it's, Oscar here. Well, that's not so much what I meant. Is that it's good acting in that it's convincing and it's very understated understated is the key yeah. with Roger Moore because yeah. although he's understated in the Bonds um, he's, he's very loudly understated well he's understated <laughs> in a very kind of narrow range in a boring way yeah. and he's certainly not showing the, the torment because there's often torment in this hmm. that you see in, in the character's eyes uh, or fear which you don't get you never get from Bond because he's not that kind of character it's especially in that sequence at the end as you say when he meets up with the rest of the family and he's just got in out of the rain and he's just in a bit of a... Also, I mean, it helps that they've made him up to look so ghoulish by then. <laughs> yeah. But talking about the understating, understated acting, the admirably understated acting of Roger Moore, we now have to talk about Freddie Jones. Unbelievable, isn't it? Well, that's, that's such an issue with this film. I don't know what they were thinking. Well, the thing is... OK, so for people who don't know, Freddie Jones is one of these... Uh, he's a, a well-known British actor, uh, quite highly regarded, but he's... He's a bit like, I've got to get the name right, I think it's Patrick McGee. Am uh, I... That sounds right. Yeah, because yeah. there's also Patrick McAnee. But Patrick McGee, like Freddie Jones, these two guys, they specialised in like extraordinary over-the-top sort of performances, the sort of things that you might get in a prime Ken Russell movie. Yeah. So Freddie Jones, who, if you're looking for him, he's the guy in The Elephant Man who's the cruel sort of circus 
a guy who owns the Elephant Man, early in the Elephant Man, who owns John Hurt. Uh, and that's an extraordinary performance from Freddie Jones. But he, I think he's also plays an incredible drunken figure in, in, in his version of Treasure Island. Anyway, he plays these big over-the-top parts. And in this movie, poor Roger Moore, poor Pelham, he's convinced he's losing his mind. So he goes to a psychiatrist and it's his misfortune that the psychiatrist is Freddie Jones. And like Freddie Jones just does this whole thing as a complete turn. Like he's... He's wearing a bow tie, which is deliberately askew. He's got these crazy little glasses on. And he's just, he's giving this really um, mannered, bizarre performance. And it must have been with, I mean, the director must have been on board with this. It, it's very weird. Does the tone no favours <laughs> at all? Because suddenly you think, well, hang on, am I watching a comedy here? Because it's not a straight performance. No, it's a musical Even tone. later on, um, when he has that brief return and he sees both Pelhams leave the house... <laughs> It's a double take that probably wasn't necessary. <laughs> and he does things like he turns up in poor Pelham's room when, when Pelham is, uh, is, is hospitalised in his psychiatric institute. And he's got... All, Freddie Jones has these huge leather books under one arm. And all this... And it's a, it's a very amusing, very skilled performance, but it's, it sort of belongs in another movie. Yeah. It, it, you can't take <laughs> it seriously at all. And I think Freddie Jones also... I think he also appeared in Dune. I think David Lynch really liked him because he liked that kind of crazy overacting style. But it's just an odd bit of casting. And I thought it was fun in its own way, in a self-contained way. It's fun to watch Freddie Jones do his thing. But as, as you say, it's not really in keeping with the movie. No, it, it bothers me every time. And I've got it written down there, actually, over-the-top psychiatrist. <laughs> what are your other notes? I made a note, there's one line of dialogue I really liked, which is from Pelham's wife, where she says it's a sign of middle age when a man starts switching off lights. That's a great line. I thought it was terrific. <laughs> that really hit home more than it did when I first saw this film when I was 20. No, and I, I, I thought, I really love that because it's a great piece of dialogue and it's a great piece of observation. It's like real people talking, Yeah. which I thought was excellent. It's a nice line. I, I'm going to make a note of it myself and rip it off at some point. Yeah, and... It's particularly good because the wife has almost nothing to do in the movie. She's very sidelined. The mistress doesn't have much more to do either. No. So it's, at least she, she has a job taking photos. But She uh, has incredibly careful, coquettish nudity as well. Not enough for my money. No, but they're falling over themselves to get enough flesh on show but not have nudity in the film. Um, well, it was interesting because at that point, I think nudity was a possibility, wasn't it? I don't know, because there's no... When we're talking about nudity, let's... In, film, in terms of the rating it would have got at the time... Let's be clear about this. It's sort of bikini shots. Yeah, but it... Glamorous bikini shots. More often than not, she's got tops that fall open uh, to, throughout To reveal uh, panties and a bra. Yeah, just like a... Or just like <clears throat> mid-cleavage. So yeah. it's it's incredibly deliberate. But it's, it's very... Yeah, I see what you're saying, because it it's... Draws, it draws the eye, not because <laughs> it's partial nudity, but because it's... it's clearly there because they know that's what they can get away with and that's what she's there for. I see what you're saying is, is that it's very restrained but it's also very deliberate. Like they're, yeah. they're throwing in some cheesecake but it's very timid cheesecake. Absolutely. Yeah, okay. Um, but she, she looks great. Has which to makes said. you question the audience that they're aiming for. Well, I suppose that they're, they're thinking it's a sophisticated entertainment for adults but it's not an X certificate, presumably. I doubt if it would have been. I, I wouldn't know. I wasn't around at the time. It's not going to be on the case. But I mean, it's a PG um, yeah. now but that doesn't necessarily mean it wasn't a PG at the time it could have easily been an X you know, attitudes and times change 
Yeah, and uh, I'm trying to think of other notable singers. The two things I've written down were Richmond Bridge and Freddie Jones. <laughs> those well, are did I <clears throat> mention Frank Bellamy? I think I did. Yeah, well, I was rather disappointed <laughs> that because I got an email from you saying there's a great joke about Frank Bellamy. For those no, who don't know... I said there's a great line about Frank uh, Bellamy. There you go. <laughs> I'm looking up now on my wall. There's hang, hanging uh, an original drawing by Frank Bellamy who's one of the great British comic artists. Yeah. Uh, there's also a character in this movie called Frank Bellamy no relation. Well, the wife just at one point just says, why do you cook up all these lies about Frank Bellamy? And it cracks me up every time I hear it. Just like, it would be an odd thing to throw into a film. Frank Bellamy was a great British comic artist, most noted for things like Garth and uh, Thunderbirds. Yeah. Yeah, but he has no connection with this film at all. And also Doctor Who. Oh, of course. I'm so sorry. He did some great Doctor Who Radio Times illustration. Wonderful. Really wonderful. Uh, and also, you know, we could easily build a bridge between this movie and Frank Bellamy because... He worked on a, an episode of The Avengers, which was about a comic artist, and all the comic art was drawn by Frank Bellamy. It was called something like The Falcon Man or something. Do, do, Probably you, directed by Fuse, I think. Well, yeah, I, and it wouldn't be hard to find people who worked on both on this movie and The Avengers, because well, yeah, that that, yeah. it was that kind of time. Yeah, and it, also The Avengers in this period would have had the same sort of beautiful, crystal clear colour photography shot on film, that this this movie has, I, but I was sort of hoping you might be an Avengers expert who could suddenly, God no, suddenly tell me exactly what I, I'm looking over. Here. Ah, I've I, never I, watched a, a whole episode of the Avengers. Oh, I love the Avengers, and you are a fool not to. But let's have a quick look in the Avengers book and see what that episode was called, because we're sitting in a room. Who's have you got? Books. I know a few. That's what happens if you take one book off my bookshelf. Jesus, ah. this makes great radio. Yeah. So what has happened is. Uh, I've got these really crappy bookends, and they, they basically go kamikaze if you take one of the books off the shelf. <laughs> Your book has lots of um, TV Times cuttings in it. Oh, oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's quite sweet. So which book? They are, whatever Avengers book you were thinking, I've probably got both. I've got this one as well. <laughs> Interesting that they're all on that photo of Diana Rigg. Oh, I love, no. <laughs> oh, and should we mention that Diana Rigg, I think she died last week, didn't she? She did. Yeah. Uh, she we just... probably should have done a Rigg film, but I've just watched uh, two main ones that I like, so... She was a fantastic actress and also astonishingly beguiling and attractive, it has to be said. So the movie, uh, it's called something like The Winged Avenger. So let's have a quick look. I might trim this down or just add some uh, lift music to it. Yeah, yeah. Or some Avengers themes. <laughs> uh, must have guessed. The Winged Avenger, which was written by Richard Harris, directed by designed by Wilfred Shingleton, so no Robert Fust, directed by Gordon Fleming and Peter Duffel, which suggests that it was reshot, produced by Albert Fennell, Brian Clemens, executive producer Julian Wintle, so perhaps no connections at all, but it, uh, fantastic. Episode. It was worth destroying a bookcase for. <laughs> oh, well, actually, the only book that took a hit was one about, uh, about early, early American recordings, and I think we were okay there, but that was, it sounded pretty dramatic, didn't it? You said which Avengers book is it? Yeah, neither. Are, I, I, do I you know, know a another of, one? Oh, yeah, there's loads. Right. We've sold loads in the shop over time. Have I not got the best one? Uh, you've got the illustrated ones. I don't, I don't know what the best ones are, but Alan Hayes has written a couple, so I don't know if they're Avengers Guides or what. And Wasn't I think Telos did one as well. written as though it was real from Reynolds and Herman? Oh, I think it was, because I, I think I proof edited that one. Anyway, <laughs> enough of that. So, what do we think about this? But the main thing. I want to say about this movie, apart from the fact that it's got this 
it's gorgeous. It's got this fantastic exterior. It's a wonderful um, document of what of London at that time. It's worth watching just for that. It's beautifully made. Uh, in that final car chase at the end, there's some really trippy color photography because um, he begins to crack up as he's being pursued by his doppelganger and he's looking in the rearview mirror and you get all these different colors on his face and he, he starts to see faces in the rearview mirror uh, laughing at him and he smashes the mirror and that just causes multiple faces to be sneering and laughing at him. And it's, it, it does get a bit psychedelic at that point, which I really liked. As his wife says at one point, you're never the same man twice. Uh, what does she say that in relation to? Um, when he's acting strangely. Uh, I think it's possibly when they're out dancing, when they've gone out to dance after the casino. Yeah. which is a good scene for Michael J. Lewis music because there's a combo there playing. Which is <laughs> they're great, aren't they? What a nightclub. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, uh, the music's good. I, I liked it a lot. But the main thing I wanted to say is that this is really quite a a bleak movie because it's about this guy who's on this hell ride to oblivion. Well, ultimately, you know, if you take the other company being called EGO... I um, love that. It and Ego. Company, Ego that. It's human the ego's taking over and it's taking over for a reason and to make his life better or to somehow improve his way. But I'm so By glad you told film, me about he's that. He's back to the same guy. He, you know, yeah. the, the new... Pell is the one that dies. The guy with the pink shirt and the new tie. That's right. He goes. You're left with the bowler-hatted businessman. Everything has remained the same. Yeah. Yes, that, which is something we didn't we didn't quite touch upon, which is that for that before that final confrontation, the reason that the cuckoo has been able to get into the nest, that the doppelganger has been able to take over, is that um, Pelham has committed himself into the psychiatric care of Freddie Jones. Never a good idea. <laughs> so he spent several days, maybe weeks, uh, in a, a psychiatric bed on drugs. Then when he goes home, he, he goes back to the office initially. Oh, yes, Freddie Jones' advice to him, which turns out to be fatal, is that he should cease to be the boring kind of bowler-hatted gent that he is and break out of it. On the face of it, quite good advice. So we next see Pelham walking into his office in this groovy kind of bright <laughs> kipper tie colored suit instead of the you know the very straight uh striped school tie and the black suit that he had before he's very kind of carnaby street up dressed up and uh, even orders coffee instead of tea oh i didn't notice that yeah, that's changes his whole routine. oh yeah but actually that that jars a bit because when you first cut to him you think it's so different you think it might be the doppelganger so uh, <laughs> that was a but anyway the point is he's dressed completely uncharacteristically. So when he goes home and confronts the doppelganger, there's no way he can convince his family that he's the real one because he looks he's never looked less like Pelham. There is that, that moment point. of absolute... He reaches a peak when they say, oh, I'd never wear that tie. <laughs> but I just bought this. I know, but it's so unfair. And it's all down to Freddie Jones. Yeah. Why would Freddie Jones be passing outside as he is a moment later? Because... Um, when he left the office, he phoned the secretary and said, get the doctor to meet me at my house. Oh, so that actually holds so he asked order. Him to go. Yeah. I, I thought that. I only noticed it when I watched it through this time. I'd never noticed that before. It did seem odd that he just turns up. But no, he does ask for the psychiatrist to meet him at the house. And the thing is, at that point, the psychiatrist actually clocks that there are two people who look just like yeah. Pelham. Which leads me to one of the other loose ends. So The week later. <laughs> well, yeah, the thing is, so you've got a dead Pelham in a car in the Thames. People aren't going to just ignore that. That Pelham fades away, though, doesn't he? And the car. They just disappear. Well, they disappear in the sense that if your car, with its headlights on, sinks in the river, 
The yeah, credit lights will go out I eventually. Think it does. I think doesn't Pelham fade away before the car sinks? Not that I noticed, but I mean that at least would tie up that loose end mm. if he vanished from this universe. But as far as I could tell, the car just sank in the Thames. There were still a lot of things to yeah. tie up on this. Yeah. So I, you know, once you take the car out of the Thames, you find Pelham dead in it with his ID. You go around to his house and you find this other guy's there. So I don't see how that could could get away with that for long. But your thesis is that that car sort of vanishes from this world. Yeah. The, which would be a cool thing. I didn't Because the other car that. must have come from somewhere and he didn't buy it. Because that sports car's around before uh, he buys it as part of the story. Well, the silver he, car, because you see it outside the house a few times and yeah, then they end well, up owning one. When you say that he bought it, that's just what his wife reports that he he told his wife that he bought it. Isn't that right? Yeah, but we don't see him buy it. He's already bought a replacement car. He's bought the same car. So yeah. he hasn't bought two cars. So you you seem to be suggesting to me, Matt, that, that uh, the car has come from a different universe. Yeah, the car just appears from nowhere. Yeah. The car is present before it's introduced as part of the plot. It's very strange. Well, the, of course, we get because the flat. other Pelham is driving it around. You see him drive away from the flat when he pulls up at the girlfriend's flat, the mistress's yeah, flat. Yeah, yeah. Well, well, we see him parked outside Pelham's house on a sort of stakeout, and that's when we does this thing where he snaps the match. Yeah. We don't see who's in it. But we so see it's not it. Pelham's car. So where did it come from? Yeah. So it's the, it obviously came from the same place that alternate universe Pelham came from. Unless Pelham's just known for buying cars week in week out. Well, yeah. You, the, the thing is, if the Pelham doppelganger had just accessed Pelham's bank account and bought a car with it, I think Pelham, number one, would have noticed well, the outgoings. He's got a lot on his mind. <laughs> There's a lot going on. But uh, as I said at the very beginning, there is this flash forward to that car when he's racing along and has the initial car crash. It does. There's this sort of brief dissolve where the rover turns into the Lamborghini. Yeah. The only reason I know the names of these cars is I listen to a bit of the commentary. Because yeah. I'm not a man for identifying British motor cars. That whole commentary is worth a listen. I have not listened to it uh, since the Anchor Bay release, which is, yeah. I think, what it's from. It's been ported over from that. And it, Roger Moore commentaries are always worth a listen. Yeah, but but the thing is, it's Roger Moore, who obviously knows about the film, Brian Forbes, who's a major figure in the British film industry, writer, director and actor, a uh, very interesting figure, his autobiography is excellent. And there's a guy who had written a book about Peter Cushing who's sort of chairing that. And he's the one who tells us that there was uh, an Alfred Hitchcock Presents version of this. So he's good value too. He's uh, an informative fella. Can't remember who that is. Well, I've, still on the back. Yeah, I, I don't... I had a book about Peter Cushing, but it wasn't by him. So I, I don't know. There are a lot of books about Peter Cushing. Yeah. So what, what I was just trying to sum up is that this is an extraordinary dark movie. Because there's no hope in it at all. Uh, from the beginning, poor Pelham... I mean, Pelham starts with a car crash and wakes up into a world where he's being haunted, as it, the title suggests, and hounded by his own double. And there's no joy awaiting him. The double eventually kills him and takes over. So, and so if you buy into that, what we're watching is either a supernatural thriller or some kind... If you want to go down the alternate universe route, it's a very unusual science fiction movie. Yeah. But it's probably not a psychological thriller. Well, it does function as a psychological thriller all the way through when you're not sure what's going on, right? That's And that's, I mean, it's compelling viewing just based on that because you yeah. do want to know what's going on. But I don't know about you, but when I first watched this film, all I could think of is that I'm not going to be satisfied by the end of this film. I sort of felt that too. Yeah. yeah. And was that the case? Yeah. And I can't think of a better way of ending it. I mean, yeah, there are a lot of ways of ending it, but I can't think of a good you, one. There's no way you could tie up in a satisfying fact like um it was a russian spy pretending who had 
you know, plastic surgery pretending to be him. If you had done that, it would have explained it, but it would have been the world's worst ending. <laughs> I think your only hope is to actually have a genuine double, but there's no logical reason for that. No, and, and, I, and the, the thing work. about that is, for that really to work, you sort of have to kind of set up that, that it's that sort of film, that it's a supernatural film by sort of by showing your cards earlier on, I think. But knowing that there are now two Pelhams because he died on the operating table, where is the other Pelham? When does that Pelham first appear? Yeah, where did he... Yeah, where was he? Where has he been? Because only point... one's wheeled out of the hospital. Yeah. So... The other one's clearly... While he's gone off on Spain, this other one's been... Yeah, and he has that full access to his wardrobe and apparently his bank account and, yeah. and a very nice Italian sports car with uh, headlights that, that uh, rotate. So maybe it's the, the maid and the... The house, the butler. Oh, the well, Luigi that's, and Maria. I, I almost didn't mention that, but he, they've got servants. They've got an Italian couple who cook for them, and I'm, I'm sorry. Like Pelham seems very uninterested in, in the, the the food they've cooked, the pasta they've cooked for him. Constantly. Thinking, I thought, oh, that's that sounds really nice. Yeah, just what you need that time of night. <laughs> yeah, so bring on the bring on the uh, proper Italian pasta, please. But, yeah, so it's ultimately. A very unsatisfying movie, and it makes me wonder what the book does. Whether the book is equally shrouded in mystery and, and doesn't explain anything. We should both get a hold of it and give it a read, and yeah. then do one on the book as well. Yeah, well, that, that'd be <laughs> true. but I suspect there's no way that the book could be any more satisfying in that sense. It depends how loose the adaptation is. Yeah, I mean, I get the sense that there's an enigmatic little tale, like about a man who's haunted by the by his double, and there's never any explanation. And there isn't really here either. I mean, in terms of the title, what you could infer as a, a more linear story is that the idea is that after the accident, prior to the accident, he's had this idea of, you know, this fake takeover or yeah. a genuine takeover. He has the accident, wakes up and then thinks to himself, am I the kind of guy that would have done that? And that would be him being haunted by himself, is that his actions before the accident, he doesn't understand now that he's, he's trying to come to terms of who he really is. Yeah. But, you know, I just thought again, that thing about the id and the ego, which you sprung on me which is so fantastic that's about a takeover isn't it it's yeah the ego's taking over yeah, it's incredible ego i can't remember what it stands for it's, yeah yeah but it's i mean they they liberally splash ego about throughout that film they overplay it like you wouldn't believe but i they, they obviously didn't because i never got it but that, that suggests that there was somebody EGO really, takeover it says right <laughs> somebody really gave that some some careful thought and i i it makes me want to see the film again this is a very interesting movie and it's a very unusual movie, and it's it's a, it's an almost aggressively uncommercial movie because although it's a thriller in that sense, it's a thriller that fails to pay off in a satisfying way, and people would would leave the cinema cursing it. I think people who wanted a uh, traditional entertainment would not be satisfied with this film. No. And it wasn't a success, was it? No, not at all. <laughs> it's probably made more money on DVD than it ever did at the cinema. Yeah. But it's it's a not a low budget movie. It's a very very high polished, glossy, um, high quality looking film. It's good fun. Yeah, it was it was terrific. So, uh, what are you going to spring on me next? What are we doing next? I'm trying to remember. We are, oh ah. Mm, I think we're going to um, do Street Law, which is an Italian Street cop Law. movie. Yes, a uh, yeah. I adore this. It's two of my favourite people. It's Enzo Castellari, who's the director. And Franco Nero, who's the star. Is there any connection between the movie I, we've just discussed and that movie? And the, the uh, street law? Are they a similar period? You were saying earlier that you thought they came out about the same time? 
Yeah, I think Street Law is about 74. It's, it's a 70s movie. It's 72, and maybe what we've just discussed was a movie from the, the end of the 60s, wasn't uh, it? At best, it involves a reasonably successful man having a bit of a struggle. Okay. <laughs> That's there's maybe no, understating it. There's no connection at all, basically. Not that I can think of right now, but I'm sure we'll find one. There's a lot of very fast cars. <laughs> oh, that'll, that'll do. Yeah, that'll there do. You go. And a fantastic soundtrack. Oh, well, that's. I also thought the soundtrack for this was pretty darn good. So that's It was a good one, but it, I'm surprised. I, In my head, it's all the way through, but actually there's very little music in the whole film. So that main theme is really just the opening title. It's a cracking opening title. And as you say, uh, they keep saying, oh, this was your favourite music, and they keep dragging out this, yeah. <laughs> this easy-listening album, which I noticed was a, the record it has an EMI label on it, which I thought, yeah, that's brand loyalty because it's an EMI film too. Well, next time, Italian. Yeah, looking forward to it. This has been a podcast by Matt West and myself, Andrew Cartmel. And very importantly, big shout out to Joe Kramer, who did the fantastic theme music, which you heard at the beginning. Why bother to cook up all these fantastic lies about Frank Bellamy?